Okay, thank you for coming to this public event organized by the LSE Middle East Center. A very fascinating and, of course, very timely event. The title is Covering the Arab Spring, Are the Media Getting It Wrong? Well, uh, a big question, and we'll have fascinating responses by a, a wonderful panel that we have here. I'm just here to chair this event. My name is Miria Georgiou. I teach at the Department of Media and Communications at the LSE. And uh, the reason I'm here is because I have done some work uh, with uh, Arab communities across Europe and on uh, Arab transnational television. But of course, I know nothing compared to these wonderful gentlemen there on the panel. Um, we have at the moment three of our four speakers, but the fourth speaker is somewhere stuck in, uh, 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 in some traffic lights, so he should be here any minute. So um, I would like to start by introducing the speakers who are here in the order that we agreed that they will present uh, tonight. So Brian Whitaker, closer to me here, uh, is a journalist, has been a journalist for the newspaper The Guardian uh, since 1987. And its Middle East editor, he has been its Middle East editor from 2000 to 2007. He's currently an editor of the paper's Comment is Free. He runs a personal non-Guardian related website, albab.com, highly recommended, about politics in the Arab world, and he's also the author of a recent book, Unspeakable Love, Gain Lesbian Life in the Middle East. So Brian will talk first, and then we will move to Rami Ali, who's teaching in the anthropology department at the University of Sussex, and he's a former colleague. He worked here at the LSE as a researcher in, the, uh, in a project on transnational um, Arabic television. Um, but more interestingly than that, uh, uh, Rami at the moment is working on an initiative in Egypt called the Public Service Broadcasting Initiative, and he's the head of its research and editorial unit. So I believe that he will be talking to us about this initiative and the recent events also in the Middle East. Uh, Roger Hardy, uh, in the middle, um, is now working at the LSE. He's based at the LSE. He's uh, 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 here with us. But of course, he uh, was for over 20 years a Middle East and Islamic affairs analyst for the BBC World Service. He's also the author of The Muslim Revolt, A Journey Through Political Islam. And he's now at the LSE after six months in Washington, D.C., where he was at the uh, Woodrow Wilson Center, where he was a public policy scholar, a scholar researching the war of ideas under the Bush and Obama administrator, administrations. So each of our speakers will spend eight to ten minutes and, uh, uh, so that we have time in the end for questions and comments. Each one of them will come here to speak on the microphone because this event is recorded. You can also tweet, and uh, you're more than welcome to tweet, for those of you who know what Twitter is, because I hardly do. Uh, so the hashtag for tonight's event is uh, hashtag LSE Media. Hashtag LSE Media, easy to remember, and your comments are more than welcome. And in the meantime, we just got our fourth speaker. Hello. Welcome. Sorry. So the red light turned green, and we're very happy to have you here. So um, let me briefly introduce you. Uh, Marwan Bishara is an Al Jazeera senior political analyst. He was previously a professor of international relations at the American University in Paris. 
He's also an author, of course, and he writes extensively on global politics, and he's widely regarded as a leading authority in the Middle East and international affairs. So, he, uh, he's fashionably late, but we're very happy to have him here. So, uh, we will start with Brian. Yes, may I remind everybody to put <laughs> phones on silent. Brian. Uh, one of the questions in the little blurb for this uh, meeting was uh, why did the media miss the build-up? So I think a, an interesting question to consider is could we have seen it coming? And I think the answer to that is yes and no because it's, it's a bit like an earthquake that you can predict that one is going to happen but you don't really know when or quite where. And certainly when I, I was travelling around the Middle East in 2008 doing research for this book and I found a great deal of frustration uh, basically at all levels uh, but also a feeling that people were rather powerless and that there was nothing they could do about it. Um, even so, there was a feeling that at some point, fairly soon, something would have to give, particularly if you look at how long uh, most of the rulers have been in power. Um, so, what it actually needed, I think, to start sending off was actually quite a small and, and really fairly insignificant event, uh, but you also needed sufficient numbers of people uh, to uh, sympathize with that and at the same time to feel that they could actually do something. And so what we saw in the middle of December last year was the incident in Tunisia in Sidi Bouzaid uh, where the man set fire to himself. And I started watching that on the internet, uh, noticing a few reports about what was happening and knowing that there had been similar sorts of things in Tunisia in the past which had uh, come to nothing because the, uh, the regime crushed them. I sort of left it a few days and then by uh, December 24th, Christmas Eve, I, was, I sort of reviewed it and I thought actually this isn't going to stop. It, it looks like it's building up, it's spreading to other, other places. And then uh, at, at that stage, I think there'd been one report in the Financial Times, one in the LA Times, and I think Bloomberg had carried a bit. Uh, that was certainly in, in the Western media. Um, then on, I think it was the 28th of December, uh, I wrote a piece for the Guardian website uh, likening what was happening in Tunisia to the uh, uh, Romanian Revolution and I stuck my neck out a bit and suggested that uh, this could be the end of Ben Ali and as it turned out a few weeks later it was. Now while this was going on I mean I was writing about it quite extensively on my uh, my own personal blog and people in Tunisia were complaining that the the Western media were ignoring what was happening. Uh, I think there were several reasons for that. One that it was Christmas and New Year so the papers were very much on uh, skeleton stuff. Um, I think there were uh, the sections of the media in the States which didn't quite grasp the significance of it. Uh, 
But at the same time, people in Tunisia were complaining that they were being ignored by the Western media. And I was saying, well, is this necessarily a bad thing? You know, you're doing this yourselves. You've got the uh, YouTube and so on where people are posting videos. It's all being documented. And particularly, the, the there was good communication within Tunisia. People were able to find out what was happening. And, you know, not to have Fox News and people like that covering it, I suggested might be quite an advantage. Um, moving on from Tunisia, uh, each of these things seems to have been different, really. In Egypt, it was almost a kind of set-piece show, at least as far as the media was concerned, because we had Tahrir Square as the, the focus. Um, some coverage in other parts, like I think Suez and, and Alexandria. Um, but it was very much a sort of spectacle in one fairly small part of a very large country. In, uh, in Libya, uh, I, and in a way I think probably the Libyan uh, conflict was the worst covered uh, of the three at that point. That was very much done in the sort of John Simpson kind of way of, uh, you know, it was sort of battlefield journalism rather than politics and things which had been uh, what we saw in Egypt. Um, then we had uh, Yemen kicking off as well, and Yemen at the best of times is a very difficult place for people to understand what's going on. And, you know, one of the differences, of course, is that to have like 30 people killed in some sort of gun battle in Yemen in a single day is actually no big deal compared with somewhere like Tunisia or Egypt, where that would be exceptional. You know, you have these uh, situations in Yemen where a tribe decides to take on the army in Marib and basically gets the better of the army. So the kind of violence that was happening in Yemen uh, was much more normal in terms of that country than it will be in terms of some others. Uh, at the same time, there were some absolutely massive demonstrations, I mean, some of the, the biggest I've, I've seen, basically. Um, then we have Syria, where I think even some of the experts were saying Syria is not ready for anything very much to happen. Uh, I mean, Abdur uh, one of the um, Syrian dissidents in the States, he wrote an article for The Guardian saying that uh, nothing is going to happen in Syria. And of course there was a, a day of rage or something they called a few weeks before the actual uprising started. And uh, that was attended mainly by the secret police. There were very few members of the public who turned out for it. And so it did look as if things were not going to kick off there at all. And then these kids painted graffiti in uh, Dira and got arrested. And it's a very similar sort of thing to what happened in Tunisia, a small incident that could have been avoided, but it just blew up and then it, it continued and, and continued. Um, on the whole, uh, it has been quite difficult to cover in lots of ways because in, in Tunisia, for example, uh, press ac media access was 
very much restricted, and so the media were relying on uh, the internet very much. Um, that has con that continued. It was a bit less so in Egypt. Uh, in Libya, I think there are all sorts of problems with like distances and you know uh, all the desert areas. Not not the same sort of situation as Egypt at all. And in in Syria and Yemen, I think. You know, day after day, it is more of the same, and it's very difficult to uh, have a kind of narrative of what's actually going on. Anyway, I think I'll I'll leave it there, and uh, perhaps come back with some questions later on. I'm not a journalist, so start with that. And I'm more interested in uh, this formulation which we're using today, which is the Arab Spring, and what it might tell us about media coverage uh, of the events over the last year. Uh, and I think that many people use the term Arab Spring quite uncritically uh, and take for granted that it means something or that it might tell us something about uh, the Arab world uh, is meaningful, let's put it that way. Uh, when we start to trace back the origins of the term uh, Arab Spring, we find that it appears in 2005 amongst conservative commentators looking at the uh, emergence of so-called democratic reform in various Arab countries. And it's then picked up again uh, towards the end of uh, 2010 and of course at the beginning of 2011 by Mark Lynch, who actually put it in the terms of is what we're seeing uh, the equivalent, uh, Obama's equivalent of the Arab Spring, so referring back to the reforms uh, or the failed uh, reform period uh, that we place around 2005. Um, and I think that there's a problem with uh, the term Arab Spring and that it actually tells us quite a lot about the media coverage. And I think one of the first things that we notice is that people on the streets uh, of Cairo or Tunis uh, or Aden or Sana'a or any of these places don't refer to the political events that they're participating in as the Arab Spring. They're quite convinced that it's uh, a revolution. And so I'm wondering why it is that we possibly underplay that term. And I'm aware that there are lots of problems with calling these things revolutions, but maybe we have to take their own self-designation more seriously. And I ask whether it is that we fundamentally don't believe uh, that what they're looking for is true change, fundamental change, uh, or whether we think within our own framework of looking at the world that they're not able to achieve that fundamental change. Uh, some, uh, some commentators within the region and beyond uh, have been very critical uh, of this term Arab Spring because really underpinning the notion uh, of an Arab Spring is a particular kind of ethnocentric uh, view of modernity. And we can see that very much in the fears that the media propagate in terms of uh, whether the Arab Spring is going well or whether it's uh, not going well. And that usually corresponds to whether, to how many uh, people with beards uh, particular uh, media analysts have seen and whether that indicates to them that this hope 
for a Western, you know, that ideal of Westernized secular democracy is something that people in the region will be able to achieve, or whether they will kind of uh, snowball into this unknown uh, area uh, of the future where, you know, God forbid, there might be some reflection of the social configurations in the region within political structures. So I think the success and failure of uh, the Arab Spring, as far as the media is concerned, is measured against uh, a normative Western ideal of where these regions should go. In fact, it goes even further in the sense that there is a fear about the economic viability of the particular models that, that, that people on the streets are, are asking for. And I think that economics is something that's been largely underplayed uh, by the media in the sense that there is a rejection of uh, neoliberal market capitalism and there is a desire for an alternative framework. But of course, uh, it's much more interesting to talk about how the region is going to descend into chaos uh, under uh, Islamists who, of course, in and of themselves have never changed and are of a noble, uh, noble uh, whole, if you like. Um, anyway, I don't think it's malicious. I think it is about a meta-narrative, uh, and I think that the Arab Spring is just uh, a catchy term. Uh, and I think that uh, we need to look more carefully at the events that are happening and allow them to tell us a little bit more uh, before we impose particular paradigms upon them. And indeed, even if we describe it as an awakening, we have an equal problem of suggesting that people were asleep. So uh, what has been happening in the last uh, 30 or 40 years in the region is, is taken out of the equation and replaced with binaries like youth and uh, you know, old and young, technologically savvy and not technologically savvy, secular and Islamist, and so on and so forth. And just to, I guess, I think the other thing which is problematic about the notion of the Arab Spring, which I think is fundamentally uh, problematic because it's it does lean towards Orientalism, <coughs> is that it's ahistorical and it, doesn't, it hasn't given us uh, the benefit of looking at uh, the particular continuities of relations. For example, you could uh, really learn a lot about what's happening, for example, in Egypt by looking at the student movement in Egypt in the 1970s or looking at the bread riots in 1977, looking at the relationship between the presidency and the military uh, over the years, and all of those things help to structure the way that we come to analyze uh, these phenomena. And I think that that is something that has been missing. The other thing is, I mean, just to allude to something I think that Brian was, was mentioning, is I think we need to take more seriously that uh, the media representations that we read are part of a discursive tradition. Yeah, okay. They are part of a discursive tradition. Uh, and that uh, the media industry in itself is something that we have to keep an eye on, that this is an industry. And there is a desire or a need for quite a heavy turnover uh, of analysis. And that I think we can't blame journalists in a way because they have to make sense of uh, a, uh, an event or a particular phenomena very, very quickly for uh, public consumption. And I think that that inevitably leads to quite a, a superficial uh, analysis but I want to say as well that this is, I'm not saying that this is something uh, that I personally am completely immune from, but I just think that uh, we have to have this kind of critical 
uh, eye upon what we're looking at and also uh, the kind of critique that we impose upon nations, communities, uh, regions, we should impose upon the industry that claims to represent what's going on. Thank you all for coming. Thank you, LSE, for not only inviting me to this event, but hosting me here for a while. They're not going to turn me into an academic, but an old BBC colleague did once, in despair, call me a academic. <laughs> I think I can live with that. Um, I want to talk about two failings, I think. Uh, the polite word would be two challenges that the media have faced this, during this past extraordinary year. But in these two challenges I see failings, I'm afraid. Um, I would love to tell you that the media have covered the Arab Spring well. I think, let me say straight away, and then push it far, far away from me, that there's been some marvelous coverage in impossible conditions. Getting the story out of Syria, for example. Dealing with a situation where you get the opposition side of the story and the regime until fairly recently doesn't let you in, doesn't give you interviews, doesn't talk to you, uh, denies you the possibility of getting uh, you know, a broader uh, coverage. Uh, I have my own uh, heroes. I think Anthony Shadid has been one of my heroes for quite a while. So let that be said, but detaching myself a bit, if, so far as I can, from the micro of, of the coverage at the broader level, it seems to me they're two big failures. I'd call them, the first is, is, has to do with getting the story, the logistics. Um, the second is, to me, the more interesting one, and no less important, is making sense of the story, framing the story, and here I'm picking up to a certain extent from what Rami has been saying. Um, let me begin by saying that something very obvious, that the media are in deep crisis. Now, that may not be the theme of our meeting this evening, but to my mind, it has a very direct bearing on our theme this evening. Uh, cutbacks, whether at the New York Times or the BBC or elsewhere, have led to a sharp reduction and will go on leading to even more reduction in coverage of world affairs. Foreign bureaus are being shut down. Journalists are either being laid off or turned into firefighters, people who are probably based in London or based at the base, as it were, and sent out like firefighters to whatever um, place is deemed to be newsworthy at that particular moment, because it's cheaper to do it that way, much cheaper. So the Arab Spring comes along in the, in the middle of all this, and I think from, the, from a media point of view, the Arab Spring is, you might almost say, a kind of perfect storm. It's a terrific story. It starts with a tremendous bang. It's a story with human drama. It's a story of global resonance. People shaking the pillars of autocracy. Millions of people around the globe can relate to that. The essential narrative, I'm going to come back to the narratives that we impose on the story, I think. Um, but the, the obvious narrative, uh, certainly in the early stages, is a very appealing one. And the media sense this straight away. Nobody has to be persuaded that this is a story. 
But after those first two dramatic months, the whole thing changes. And from a media point of view, I'm sticking to the logistical side of this now, it becomes a perfect storm because it gets harder and harder to cover the, as the uprisings spread like wildfire across the Middle East. No one, and let me, as it were, acknowledge this first, but nevertheless I'm going to be critical about its implications, no one can give equal coverage to all the uprisings all of the time. I'm not expecting them or calling for them to do that. I've lived in the media, and even if the media were fantastically better funded, and let me add, better managed than they are today, I doubt if this would happen. So let, we have to start from a position of realism, but even so, um, this fighting many fires at all at the same time has caused a, a major failing in my view. And the strongest example of this uh, that I can put to you is Tunisia. Look, remember back how quickly Tunisia is dropped after the early drama. The dictator makes an abrupt exit. Fires are spreading all around the place and the journalists rush off uh, elsewhere. I don't blame them for rushing off, but why leave Tunisia, as it were, uncovered? Uh, <laughs> not the ideal term, perhaps, but when then, last month, we come to the Tunisian elections, it seems to me that you had to really struggle, even if you were reasonably well informed about the Middle East, to find out what was going on, to prepare yourself for this election. What does it mean? Who's competing? Then the journalists do what the journalists always do. They cover the election day itself. You see, modern news is packaged into you know, bite-sized bits, like chicken fingers. Um, and an election is deemed to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It happens, and the journalists go away. Look at then, at, find out what's happening in Tunisia now. How many of you know what's happening in Tunisia now? Uh, you will have struggled if your main sources were in English um, to find out what's happened since the election. And to my mind, Tunisia matters not because of its size, more, it has unique features, it matters because it is so far the success story of the Arab Spring. By the way, I was in Washington recently and the State Department has taken to calling it the Arab thing. Um, rather revealing remark it seemed to me, you don't know what to call it, which is my little comment or the, or the State Department's unwitting comment on what Rami was saying. Uh, we journalists, I'm still a journalist at heart, we call it the Arab Spring because it's catchy, it's easy, and we think everybody knows what we're talking about. Whether it fits, whether the hand fits the glove is another matter. So Tunisia simply dropped out of the news. And if you think this is somehow special about, uh, this is unusual in the media, think of how Iraq dropped out of, has dropped out of the news for more than a year now, not because important things is, are not happening in Iraq, not because people are not dying in Iraq, but because the media caravan has moved on. We used to criticize and still criticize armies that can't fight two wars at the same time. Can our media organizations fight two wars at the same time, or more than one war at the same time? I'm not sure that they can, not in the way they're set up now. It's a failure of staying power. That's what I'm really alleging. The media get to the story, but only in bits, only at certain times. The caravan jerks along, as it were. The caravan drives to a, 
sometimes grinds to a halt, sometimes shoots off in a tangent because it thinks the story's uh, gone somewhere else. And at least part of the reason is to do with the economics of the media now. I don't think it's the only reason, but I think it's a fairly big factor. In other words, we, we are entitled to expect more. I'm not optimistic we will get more. I'm running out of time, but my second um, failing, the second failing I want to draw attention to, concerns the narrative, what Rami called the meta-narrative. But I'm going to look at this, I'm going to use that term in a slightly different way than Rami did. Let me put it this way, and I'll try and just say this as bullet points, partly to provoke you. The narrative, the media narrative, and I don't mean by this that there's only one and that all journalists subscribe to it, but, but the very prevalent bits of the framing, that's what I mean by narrative, the framing of the Arab Spring, have included at least four myths. One, that these were Twitter or Facebook or even wiki revolutions, they were not. Two, that Islam, now this is the, at the early phase now, people learned a little bit from, from experience, but early on, the myth that Islam had somehow vanished from the scene in the Middle East and had been replaced by a vibrant secular nationalism that uh, all, all everybody in the West could identify with. Uh, it hadn't, and as the young secularists in Egypt and elsewhere have now discovered, Three, that Palestine no longer mattered. Four, that the West, this is a different kind of illusion now, different kind of myth, my fourth one. The, the myth that the West can shape the destiny of the Arab world. I need to explain myself a bit here, justify myself a bit. I think plenty of journalists saw, and this is part of the unique uh, quality of what has happened in Tunisia. I don't mean by the way the Tunisians don't have challenges. I think they have loads of challenges ahead, but they are well ahead of everybody else. I think journalists could see that part of the unique character of Tunisia was that the Tunisians were doing this by themselves. And nobody knows that better than the Tunisians themselves. But compare that with Libya, because this is the one case, and I would argue the one and only case, where the West has intervened, always likely to intervene. There now we imposed our narrative, and I think that I, I would have wished the media, I'm not saying there wasn't discussion of the dissent, the controversy of the war, there was, but while that discussion is going on, the media can nevertheless follow, even unconsciously sometimes, I think, the prevailing narrative that comes from David Cameron in London, from Sarkozy in Paris. I'm not really going to talk about Barack Obama here, a rather reluctant uh, party to this enterprise, but this was driven by in, from London and Paris. And to try to just provoke you into, and to help you understand what my beef is here, let me say a little bit sourly. Could Libya end up as Iraq? It didn't start as Iraq, and the politicians made damn certain that it was not going to be Iraq, but could it end up as Iraq? And in which case, where does that leave our politicians? Can they then wash their hands of Libya and say, well, we got rid of the dictator, and if the Libyans make a mess of it, I'm sorry, that's got nothing to do with us. And from the media point of view, and again, I'm being a little bit sour-faced now, will the media stick around long enough to tell us 
whether it goes well or goes badly. So I see the Arab Spring as an absolute case study in these two respects of what's wrong with our media today. I guess I will skip to the end because I came last, is that it? Or just because I'm an Arab? I know, I know. I want to have my cake and eat it too, as it were. Um, okay, let me see. So I'm just going to sort of switch things around in a bit and as of what I've heard and I try to um, design whatever I'm going to tell you next uh, against the backdrop of what I just heard. Um, so let me tell you why I got it so wrong before the Arab Spring, so correctly so. I'm part of a small team. I write what, what we call in Al Jazeera a strategic forecast. So every season or so, I write up a paper say where we went wrong and where we need to emphasize coming the next season. So I wrote back in the autumn of 2010 a paper that said, it was actually titled, Hot Winter. And uh, I just finished my book, and I actually I start with that. I say, look, that's what I said in 2010. It's going to be hot winter. And then I just put out there what I wrote. And what I wrote was the following that everything is going wrong in the Arab world. And we need to emphasize and send our teams to Lebanon because the International Tribunal was going to take place and Lebanon was going to blow up. Palestine, where the peace process is deadlocked, there's no feasible settlements, and that's going to blow up. Iraq, the resurgence of bombing and the sectarian violence, and the US was about to, do, to redeploy out of Iraq, and that's going to blow up. The whole Iranian-Israeli-American issue, that was going to blow up. Sudan and the separation with the South, that was going to blow up. Somalia was blowing up anyway. <laughs> Yemen was blowing up between the Houthis in the north and the southerners who were going to split. And the situation was getting more and more precarious. And the Awlakis, the former Awlakis in the world, were making noise right, left, and center, and so on and so forth. This was a very dark moment. So dark that I physically went to China. <laughs> I'm serious. Back in autumn of 2010. What I then write in retrospective, I say the following. It's easy to figure out later on that the darkest moment of the night does fall before dawn. But if you say that about every miserable situation because you think life is a cycle of 24 hours, then of course you would probably be wrong every other, not every other, almost all the time. Why we don't predict revolutions? Because that's what they're called, revolutions. When did we ever predict revolutions? When did anyone ever predict revolutions? I think the fathers of the French Revolution predicted revolution? Go back to their writings. You think we predicted the revolution, the Iranian so-called revolution? 
the, 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 the communist revolution? Who predicted it? Chinese? I don't think we predicted revolutions. But what we can do is then read a lot of the stuff that we've done before on it, see how we've looked at it, and maybe try to make sense out of it. Because revolutions are not, I mean, we don't mean, we're, it's not meant for us to bite our fingers, why didn't we figure it out? That's why they're revolutions. That's why they're not, as an event, they're not evolutionary. They are revolutionary. But behind every revolution, there is an evolution. And after every revolution, there is an evolution. And what we cover is evolutions. We cover evolutions in certain ways. Media tends to emphasize the high politics, the so-called high politics, meaning politicians and the military and the security and so on, not the low politics, meaning the socioeconomic conditions on the ground. I'm talking about the news bulletins. In the, in the back sections of newspapers and in the programming departments of televisions, you will get a good idea on what's going on in the socio-political level. But news-wise, coverage-wise, we tend to cover more in the media the high politics. And if you looked at the high politics, you would have seen a miserable situation. You wouldn't have seen anything else. It would have been difficult to predict that there's going to be a dawn coming after that. And in the evolution of the revolutions, I think, and this is more to the point of our talk, our discussions tonight, the media, classic media, traditional media, and new media. And I think they have played a monumental role. And of course, when I say media, I don't, I mean, you know, I don't think BBC and Al Jazeera should be put in the same uh, category, of course. I mean, there's Al Jazeera and then there's the rest. <laughs> Arab satellite media have played a monumental role in the evolution to the Arab Revolution. Satellite Arab media was able to break the physical, the geographical, the security barriers between Arabs, among Arabs. The ones that were imposed by regimes. Satellite Arab media was able to decipher was able to confront, was able to expose, was able to present a different uh, perspective, different angle, different facts to those presented by local, domestic, mostly official media, state media in the Arab world. Satellite media since the early 90s, meaning over the last 20 years, was able to bring a new narrative. And that narrative, or narratives in the plural, and those narratives extend from the pop culture to the very political. I don't mean to make you laugh, but please feel free to, if you want to. To tell you that, in fact, it actually starts by us knocking down Jennifer Lopez and bringing out Ruby. Meaning the Arabs basically reclaimed their behinds. No longer pop cultures, whether they are female or male, no longer the Michael Jacksons of the world will be dominating our screens through the new satellite media. No longer would we need to hear CNN 
correspondent or anchor from Baghdad to tell us that there is an American war in Baghdad. By 2003, it was Al Jazeera that was reporting from Baghdad. It wasn't CNN reporting from Baghdad. The way in which the satellite media was able to take on the low politics and the high politics was unprecedented. And for the last 60 years, the barriers were built, were indeed built in such a way where even the cinema, the, uh, um, the theater, and so on and so forth, what was then, at one point, the, the Egyptian center of Arab identity, of Arab culture, of Arab nationalism, was no longer because, of course, there's a, a political situation called Egypt, Camp David, but also called physical barriers among the Arabs. The satellite television broke all of that. It did create a new possibilities for people to be able to discuss their political affairs in general, trans-regionally, that they weren't able to do it before. No longer did they need a passport or a visa to go on from one Arab country to another Arab country to be able to discuss mutual questions and preoccupations. That was possible. And I think that has created new possibilities for the Arab individual, the new generation of Arabs, who could see what the outside, outside world looks like, could see the potential, could discuss, could for the first time be able to talk more freely than they could have ever done on their own television networks or in their own newspapers. The other side of it, and I'll try to be more brief, is of course the new social media. Now, you know, not every time, because just it's mentioned by a certain Western figure, and we don't like them, that means this, the actual whatever they're saying is wrong. So, for example, I, I just said in my thing, spring have come early. Because it was winter, it was stormy, it was terrible, it was muddy. Spring has come early. You know, I didn't mean 1848, I just meant spring has come early because actually we had winter when the, in January when the revolution broke out, spring came early. But when it comes to the social media, of course, it's far more problematic. Whenever I heard Google executive, I got goosebumps. First of all, the Google executive was in jail because the executive was, had played a small part. He's actually a very nice guy, wonderful person. I'm sure you, know, it's, you can have a good beer with him, as they would say in, in Washington. But the Google executive is not the point. But social media has been a point. Among the middle classes in the Arab world, among certain generation, social media did play a role. And again, and I'm still talking in the sense of the evolution to the revolution, not in the actual revolution itself, when they start passing messages and were able to organize demonstrations better than ever before, and so on and so forth, and video, and how the videos got on television. I'm still talking about the evolution. I think social media was able to play a role, and again, I don't mean it here in the sense of the techno-civilization, I don't, I don't mean to you know, bring divinity into the question of technology. All I'm saying is that it was possible for a new generation of Arabs to communicate horizontally. That wasn't possible before. To reinvent themselves in a way that's not part of the hierarchy. That wasn't possible before. It was no longer it has to be their sheikh or their teacher or their father or their mother in in that sort of a society, patriarchal society, that was determin deterministic in their lives. They were able to communicate horizontally among themselves. That generation of youth 
I think, made it possible to think freely, to think in a way where their parents and grandparents did not think, to think in ways that other nationalities in other places, to think about Latin Americans and about East Europeans, and so on and so forth, in new ways. And I think that was interesting. Individualism, and here again, I mean it not in a media construct, but in a sociological construct, was possible because an Arab youth became more individualistic thanks to classical media, satellite media, and social media, because they could reinvent themselves in a way outside the framework of the traditional hierarchical, patriarchal society they lived in, making it more possible to get involved in the protest movement that we've seen, in organizing those things, and think that there is a possible alternative to the reality.